The Founding Fathers, American Revolution, Our Constitution, Our History, America. Thanks so much for tuning in as we discuss the people, places, events, and battles that turned 13 separate colonies into the greatest nation on earth, the United States. Welcome back, patriots. I'm your host, Ron Kern, and I am super excited that you're tuning in today, the last day of the year. Yep, the last day of 2022. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen and learn about, and hopefully experience, the people, places, battles, and everything else in between that we discuss here about the American Revolution. I hope that you had a very, very good Christmas. For me, it was filled with astonishing meals, one being likely the best that I've ever consumed. My son and wife are just absolutely incredible in the kitchen, and the meal was from food that we grow on the farm as well as the beef we raise, so it was oh, it was amazing. A lot of time was spent with family and my new son-in-law, and I'm kind of sad that it's actually over. I hope that Santa was as good to you as he was to me. I received lots of American Revolution books, a Patriot Bible, a 1776 watch band, and all sorts of great stuff. I'm pretty easy to shop for. Like, anything American Revolution related is a guaranteed win. But also, this was my first Christmas without my father, who passed away in April. Uh, But God provided peace for that, and the blessings seemed to overflow and hopefully they did for you as well. This will be the last show of 2022, and I think that you're really, really going to enjoy it. My plan was not even to have a show uh, like this. Uh, My last show was going to be the last of the year, but I just uh, felt like I needed to do the crossing of the Delaware. It was a topic in one of the books that I'm reading. And I thought, well, you know what? It happened during Christmas and it's Christmas time. So in a couple days, I just really dove in and man, I really think you're going to like this. So if you have big plans for tonight to bring in the new year, hopefully you're going to be safe, but have lots of fun. Uh, I think me and my wife are going to do about everything we can to stay awake past 10 Uh, But that may be pushing it. I'm not sure, but I think it's a sign of getting old or... Anyways, the Christmas that many of us experienced, and New Year's Eve today, and New Year's Day coming soon, could not be any more opposite than what I'm going to be talking about today. And because this event took place on Christmas, at least one of them did, and the battles go into New Year's Day and after, I thought it was pretty good timing to have this bonus episode. The American Revolution at the time of this event was really on the verge of collapsing. Suffering loss after loss, no money or food for the soldiers, and the morale was about as good as the weather was. Washington wrote a letter to his cousin around this time, referring to the state of the war by saying, I think the game is pretty near up. The situation was bleak. Washington's army had lost about 90% of its strength, and to top it off, enlistments were about to expire at the end of the year, which was only a week away. The Continental Army, well, they needed something real big and real positive to happen. It needed to be spectacular, something that would uplift the spirits of the army, and likewise, something that would make a big splash to the world that was watching. They needed a miracle, and it came on Christmas. In 1776, George Washington spent his Christmas away from family and friends outside in frigid cold weather and participated in one of the most iconic moments in American history, that being the Crossing of the Delaware, or sometimes referred to as Washington's Crossing. The crossing is usually mentioned, but it seems like they just skip over that with all the emphasis going on the battles that took place after they crossed, which were the Battle of Trenton and Princeton. Now, I'm going to cover those battles too, but I think the actual crossing and the march to Trenton 
were equally amazing as the battles themselves. Now I mentioned that frigid cold weather. Frigid cold weather is being rather generous in describing that night. In reality, it was rather brutal. Washington and his army woke up to a frozen, snow-covered ground with the Delaware River filled with icy cold water and scattered over it were frozen pieces of ice. Not the big Titanic-type chunks that are depicted in the famous painting, but hold on to that thought. I'll come back to that painting and all of its inaccuracies a little bit later on. The high winds added to the already horrific ensemble, making the rain, snow, sleet that was oftentimes flying horizontal because of the wind, it made that feel like miniature shards of glass that were just digging into your skin when you got hit by it. Nobody could escape the weather that night, regardless of what they tried, and the cold would cut through their wool clothes and go straight to the bone. Even if Washington and his troops could cross the Perilous River and land safely in New Jersey, they would still have to walk another 10 miles, continuing to fight Mother Nature the entire way, which was a losing battle, and literally try not to freeze to death. Then they would have to regroup, organize, and attempt a daring surprise attack on the British in a tiny place called Trenton. The crossing itself was extremely difficult and very dangerous. The Delaware River was icy and swollen with winter rains, making it difficult for the troops to cross. Additionally, the boats that they used weren't in the best of condition and they had to be repaired before they could even use them. It would have been tough enough with just that. Now add the sleet mix that's being slammed into them by the howling winds. Also, the current of the river didn't help matters either. It took 11 hours for the 2,400 men to cross the river. In addition to the men themselves, they also brought muskets, cannons, bayonets, ammunition, and other military equipment such as blankets and medical supplies. They of course brought their horses too, and all of those larger items were uh, taken across the river on a ferry. The average weight of a cannon was 450 pounds. Can you imagine rolling cannons weighing that much onto a small ferry? And for that matter, try envisioning moving them, mostly by hand, from New York to Pennsylvania and then over the river. Obviously, cannons wouldn't fit in the boats, but they did use the small ferry for the cannons, horses, and other large items. It was a very slow go using the ferry with the high water and ice, which is why they used boats for the men and the ferry for the larger and heavier items. There is no record of anyone dying on this initial crossing, although several did fall out of their boats and they were either pulled back in or they were close enough to shore to swim to safety. After the battle at Trenton, they crossed it again, which was done in even worse conditions, and several men did die on the second crossing, falling out of their boats and drowning. I'm only going to really dive into the first crossing and the Battle of Trenton and Princeton, but I wanted you to know, on their way back, it was even worse. If you can believe it actually could get worse than it already was. It was brutal conditions. In this episode's show notes, I have some really cool videos and pictures of the location of where they crossed, at least the ferry location, and is estimated that that is the location of where he crossed. I believe it's pretty close, as it makes logistical sense, especially when you see the photos and such on the show notes page. Now, my wife and I did visit the Washington's Crossing Historic Park a few years ago, so I think you're going to enjoy seeing what it looks like now. And back then, it was called McConkie's Ferry. And in one of my videos, I stand on the bank on the Pennsylvania side, and I pan over to the New Jersey side. And even when re-watching the video now, I try and think of how it must have looked and felt on that historic day. And I'm certain I fall well short of just how bad the conditions were. There's also a short video of what the boats looked like that they used, and a replica of what was called a Durham boat. 
which was probably the most integral type of boat used in the crossing. Now the Durham boat was a large wooden flat-bottomed double-ended freight boat which was in use at the time on many of the interior waterways. Washington had ordered that every boat along the Delaware River from Trenton to 70 miles north be commandeered and secured making sure that the boats could not be used and were unattainable by the British and also securing them so they could be used for the colonial army. Captain Daniel Bray, Jacob Gearhart, and many other patriots delivered the boats to McConkie's Ferry for the crossing on Christmas night. I also added a photo of the table and location of where George Washington and his closest officers sat and made the plans for the crossing and even a handwritten note from Washington. It's pretty cool stuff in the show notes, so make sure that you take a look at that. In addition to the pictures and videos that I took while there, I have many links that really bring the crossing to life in reenactments and other short videos. And as typical, I always try to include a video that explains my topic for kids, and this show is no exception. Couple links for kids are included as well, and I believe one of them is a video. So I think the the kids out there that may be listening to this will really enjoy. It. But all of the links are worth exploring. Okay, so after they cross, once they reach Trenton, the British that Washington and his men would be attacking were actually Hessian soldiers that England paid to help fight in the war. And as you have learned in previous shows. Hessians were considered the most trained, skilled, and ferocious soldiers in the world, and everybody feared going up against them. I think a more accurate description would be to call them assassins, with many of them starting their training and military career at the ripe old age of, anyone? Seven. Seven years old, and, and they started their military career they learned and trained and drilled to do one thing and one thing only, kill and defeat the enemy. Can you imagine, like even get there, joining the military at age seven? I couldn't even keep track of my Legos at that age and these young boys were learning and perfecting the art of war. It's, it's just amazing. Now during the course of the war, England paid for and brought over a substantial number of Hessians about 30,000 of them. Now why in the world would England pay for soldiers when they were at the time the largest military in the world and the strongest military? Well, you have to keep in mind that England was all over the world at this time. They were trying to take over and dominate and control as many colonies in many parts of the world as possible. So their army was scattered throughout the globe requiring them to get help from other countries. And for the revolution, they chose Germany and the best of the best. You can compare England at the time to the Roman Empire, moving and dominating countries as they landed, literally trying to have and take control over the entire world. One other thing that the British and Roman empires had in common was that they both eventually collapsed and failed. And as you study history, it seems to be the normal evolution of empires. It's called declinism. And although it's not related to this show's topic, I do have a link to a video showing the similarities of these two empires. So check it out if you want a short and well done summation, all under seven minutes long. And that video is located in our show notes. An interesting fact about the crossing is that it was not originally part of Washington's plan. In fact, the Continental Army was in the midst of a retreat after suffering a series of defeats in New York, and Washington and his troops were camped on the Pennsylvania side of the Delaware, and their initial plan was to continue their retreat further into Pennsylvania. However, after receiving intelligence that the Hessian soldiers stationed in Trenton might be celebrating Christmas and were not expecting an attack, one, because it was winter and European armies never fought in winter, and secondly, it was a holiday. George Washington and his council of war made a bold decision 
to take advantage of that opportunity and launch a surprise attack. Consider everything that you have learned thus far and what you're going to be learning as we go through this podcast further. I think you might be able to then comprehend just how bold, daring, and dangerous of a decision this was. Keep in mind that during winter, it was customary for both sides to go into winter quarters and not fight at all. The commander of the British troops, Charles Cornwallis, was so confident that nothing was going to take place during the winter that not only was he not going to engage in a fight, he was going to go back to London and then come back after the winter. He was fairly confident that the colonial army wouldn't even survive the winter. But, as in many other instances during the war, the most famous probably being Yorktown, Cornwallis was wrong. Many would use this opportunity to say England was cocky, they were arrogant, they were this, they were that. They, they certainly could have had that feeling, right? But I can totally understand how Cornwallis thought this way, though. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I mean, Cornwallis was an exceptional military tactician, uh, a great leader, and I don't believe he was overly confident or cocky. It was just the reality of the situation and him looking at all the facts. And it makes perfect sense that the fighting is not going to take place during the winter. Washington's army had about 10% of the strength left and believed, rightfully so, that this winter was probably going to be the end of George Washington and the entire Revolutionary War. Now, the plans that were made by Washington and his Council of War included two other brigades to also cross the Delaware south of where Washington crossed. And once they all three crossed, they were going to meet up on the other side, join forces, and go into Trenton with a very nice-sized army. Well... The weather was so bad, however, that the other two brigades couldn't even cross, and that left Washington and his army to do the fighting alone. So who else was present and crossed the Delaware that night? It's unfortunate that the thousands of brave men who crossed don't get the recognition of the more famous ones, but there were several that you have likely heard of. For instance, there was a 19-year-old kid named Alexander Hamilton, Henry Knox, and also an 18-year-old kid named James Madison. Aaron Burr was also there, along with James Monroe. I think most of you know what became of Alexander Hamilton. If not, watch Hamilton, <laughs> the Broadway play. It's awesome, by the way. Word of warning, you'll never be able to get the songs out of your head, and they're all, all so good. But anyway, Henry Knox was one of only a few generals that was with Washington the entirety of the war. And his nearly impossible feat of moving 62 tons of artillery over 300 miles, all of which is in the middle of winter, is still considered today one of the most amazing military feats ever done. And I think this miracle that Knox accomplished warrants a whole separate bonus episode on that alone, but I want you to try to imagine moving that much equipment and men that far. This was up and down mountains through, uh, tree, through the trees, right? There was nothing lumbered. It was just pure natural forest. They had to go through rivers, streams, fight the elements, Native Americans. There were no roads, paths, or anything smooth at any point of the journey. There was one constant thing that was snow and lots of it, and they had obstacles every step of the way. For perspective on Knox's uh, journey, 
If you were in a car on a paved highway with no traffic to contend with, it would take you five hours to cover the distance that they did if you were going 60 miles an hour. And the distance he traveled is about a third the length of the Rhine River. If you're listening and you are in the San Diego or Southern California area, it's four times longer than the 405 highway. Now here in Idaho where I live, it would be close to the same distance walking from Boise to the Canadian border if you could walk a straight line north. I don't know if you track your steps per day like on your Fitbit or watch, but if you had that on and you walked next to Knox on this trip, at the end you would have approximately 862,000 steps. To say the least, it was one heck of a journey, and I'm sure I'll do a bonus episode on it soon. It's a trip that verges on impossible. The other two Jameses that were there, James Madison and James Monroe, they not only crossed, but they fought in the battle, both of which would later become the United States' fourth and fifth president. Aaron Burr would become our third vice president. And if you count Washington, that would mean that there were three future presidents involved with this crossing and battle, and one vice president. That's pretty astonishing if you think about it. And at no other time in history can that be said. James Monroe suffered a severe injury during the battle at Trenton. He took a musket ball on the shoulder. The bullet actually grazed the left side of his chest and it entered his shoulder, rupturing the axillary artery in the process. The quick actions of a doctor who stopped the bleeding by shoving his finger in the bullet hole and wound and then tied it off to stop the massive bleeding. That's the only reason James Monroe lived that night. And due to Monroe's bravery, Washington promoted him to captain. And due to his injury, Monroe returned home to help recruit rather than go back and fight in the front lines. 100% unrelated to the crossing or the battles, Monroe is really an interesting study, which includes a list of health issues, accidents, and ailments. For example, he contracted malaria in 1785 and almost died. And he also had subsequent flare-ups the rest of his life. In 1815, he had a quite prolonged illness, but was never diagnosed. It thought it may have been caused by the sheer duties he was overseeing at the time, the stress of being Secretary of State and Secretary of War during the War of 1812. Both his health and physical appearance improved after he relinquished the Secretary of War position. He also suffered a seizure in August of 1825, which was so bad that many visiting him thought he was super close to death. Now, he eventually recovered, obviously, but no official cause was listed. Now, historians and scientists have come together and they think that the possible causes were mushrooms, a stroke, or cerebral malaria. Regardless of the cause, it did almost kill him. In 1829, he fell off his horse, injuring his right wrist, and it was so bad that he couldn't write or keep up with his correspondence for several weeks. The following year, 1830, he developed a chronic lung disease. Monroe wrote, quote, My state of health continues, consisting of a cough which annoys me night and day, accompanied by considerable expectoration. A year later, he died of tuberculosis likely the undiagnosed ailment that he suffered through 1830. All right, let's get back to the crossing. Other notables that were integral in the crossing were Nathaniel Green and John Sullivan. Nathaniel Green was likely Washington's most favorite and trusted generals, and John Sullivan, who was in charge of the Marbleheaders, helped tremendously as his troops had experience with the sea and navigating all kinds of waters, including winter crossings, which was really convenient and critical to the success of the crossing of the Delaware. After everybody had crossed and unloaded artillery and supplies and horses, then the uncomfortable march towards Trenton started. Many of the soldiers did not have boots or even shoes, which led to two soldiers freezing to death on the march. Unbelievably, these would be the only deaths recorded that night 
including the Battle of Trenton itself. They marched and marched, freezing, cold, and could barely see a foot in front of them. But miraculously, they arrived on the outskirts of Trenton. The march from the river to Trenton took about four hours. Many of the soldiers had wrapped shirts or tattered rags around their feet while they marched, since many didn't have shoes, and the ice and cold and rough terrain did pretty much a number on those feet, and you could, quote, literally see the path they walked by following the blood from their feet. Now, personally, I have trouble walking barefoot in the grass, let alone in freezing snow. It's just incredible what and how they did what they did. It's just dumbfounding uh, how they could get through so many things and so many obstacles that they had, not only here, but throughout the entire war. It's just amazing to me. After this short break, I'm going to talk about how the battle started, what happened during it, and what the outcome meant for the army and the entire country that it was fighting for. If you like my podcast and what I'm doing, and you want to support it, I have a few ways that you can do that. Word of mouth is certainly the best way to advertise, so please tell your friends and family about this podcast. It's kid-friendly, too, so you can share it with teachers and schools if you want to. Podcasts that have a lot of reviews are just found easier. So if you have a few seconds, and literally that's all it takes, go to the bottom of my podcast, click the number of stars that you feel it is warranted, and that's it. You can write something if you want, but that's not necessary. It literally takes you just a few seconds. Lastly, we have some pretty cool patriotic gear on our newly launched online store. We have mugs, t-shirts with famous and important revolutionary quotes. Thanks for your consideration. And now, let's get back to the podcast. It is likely that if Washington and his army lost the Battle of Trenton, the war would have been over. Washington himself described the importance of the upcoming battle accurately when he chose victory or death as the countersign or password for the attack. Most people have heard these three famous words, victory or death, but likely aren't aware of the origin. Now Trenton was occupied by about 1,500 Hessians, while Washington and his army had 2,400 men. Shortly after 8 o'clock on the morning of December 26, 1776, the Continental Army started its campaign on the city. Washington had the army march in three columns, John Sullivan leading one column, Nathaniel Greene leading the second, and George Washington personally leading the middle column. They all marched through the heavy snow and were finally close enough to start with artillery fire. Although drums started from within the camp, signaling to all Hessians that they were being attacked, Washington at that point knew that he in fact had caught all of them off guard and that the element of surprise was indeed intact. Andreas von Wiedervolt, a Hessian lieutenant, told Colonel Johann Rall that the Continental Army had surrounded Trenton and there was no available route for a retreat. This information was in error and not the case, but because of what he told Rawl, Rawl decided to counterattack Washington within the city and did not retreat. I wonder where Wiederholt obtained his information as it ended up being instrumental as Washington's forces occupied the highest ground and could easily see all of Rawl's and his Hessians' movements. I wonder had Rawl known he wasn't surrounded. They could have attempted a retreat and the success of this battle maybe would have been lost, but I guess it's just another example, I suppose, in a series of hundreds, that something had to happen at the right place at the right time in order for it to work. Rawl tried multiple times to outflank the Continental Army, and each time it failed, and in short order, Washington's army overpowered the Hessians. Johann Rawl, who was in charge of all the Hessians, was mortally wounded, and when this happened, 
Many of his soldiers broke ranks, ran away from the city, and virtually stopped fighting. I find this to be so conflicting with how Hessians are trained and how they've fought historically. It may show that no matter how skilled, trained, and qualified a soldier is, without having a leader, they become confused and unsure. And many Hessians did escape Trenton, but many ended up at an orchard a short distance away, where they all eventually surrendered. The Battle of Trenton started and ended in under an hour. In that short time, they captured 900 Hessian soldiers, took all of their muskets, bayonets, cannons, swords, and anything else that they wanted or needed. The Hessians also suffered 22 dead, 83 wounded, and 900 captured. The Continental Army suffered 5 wounded in the battle, but no deaths. With victory in hand, and I presume adrenaline and energy at the highest, Washington was clear-headed enough to order his officers to treat the Hessian prisoners in a humane manner. Washington's character is virtually unblemished, but to treat those who were just trying to kill you in a kind and humane manner would be hard for most to do, I think. I mean, picture yourself going into battle, people are trying to kill you, you win, you now have them as prisoners, and you're being told to treat them kindly and in a humane manner. It's just, I don't know. Maybe others would do it. I I think personally it would be rather difficult to treat them with kindness, but hey, I'm not George Washington. This battle could have gone so differently, so easily. Aside from being told wrong intel that Trenton was surrounded, so he didn't attempt a retreat, An even more obvious and blatant piece of intel was not only received by Rawl, but he 100% ignored it. There was a farmer near the area, a loyalist, attempted to deliver a written warning about the approaching American army to Colonel Rawl. This was in fact delivered to him on Christmas, the night before the battle started. Rawl, who was eating a nice large meal and chatting with his officers, was too busy celebrating Christmas with them, and not only did he put the message in his pocket, he did so without even reading it. Had he read that note, would he have done anything different? Would the outcome have been yet another disastrous defeat for Washington? Could it have ended the war and the army right then and there? I don't know. In fact, The note wasn't even discovered until they searched his pockets well after his death. I try to imagine the the look on the guy's face who found and read the note. I can almost see his face, his forehead wrinkling up in disbelief, and then his head bowed down, sulking. It would be a pretty good cinematic moment, but dang, that would be a tough pill to swallow. Like you're going through your leader's jacket and you find this note that could have prevented it man ah he should have read that note or thankfully for the americans and the forming of our country he didn't and we went on to victory at trenton you may have read or heard that the hessians were drunk and hung over from christmas which is why washington was able to win i disagree with that theory as there is no evidence at all to support that. I think the truth of the matter is that Rawl ignored warnings, multiple warnings. He and his army were quite exhausted and tired as they'd been harassed constantly by patriots in the area for the last couple of weeks prior to the surprise attack. It was Christmas time, Christmas day, and it was in winter. So the fear of being attacked from his perspective would be like, super low. And I'm sure some of the Hessians probably had been drinking, and maybe even a few of them were drunk. But to throw a net over the entire battle as an easy victory because all Hessians were hammered out of their minds is a very foolish assumption, and one that I don't agree with. Washington made a bold decision and risked it all for the cause of freedom and liberty. The crossing and the march, as you have heard, were miraculous and borderline unbelievable by themselves. He then led his army into Trenton, who carried out the attack flawlessly. 
and Trenton was 100% a surprise attack, and everyone involved in the Continental Army showed unwavering fortitude and resolve in completing that mission. Those are the reasons why they secured a victory at Trenton. And Trenton was the first significant victory of the entire Revolutionary War and the first victory as general for George Washington. Against all odds, against an agonizing and unrelenting Mother Nature, against the most trained soldier on the planet, the Hessians, it not only changed the morale of the army, but everyone living in the colonies and those foreign powers, mostly France, who were watching from abroad. After the victory at Trenton, Washington considered moving to Princeton and attacking there. His men, however, were hungry, exhausted, and, to be honest, they needed rest. Um, they were beat. So instead of pressing forward, they returned to the Delaware River, crossed it a second time, this time with hundreds of Hessian prisoners, and decided to rest. Now, the night of the crossing was the start of what historians call, or this time frame call, the Ten Crucial Days. And I'd like to give you a brief summary of what took place each of these 10 days. Oh, and also, I have a link to a book that really goes into each day at depth that I, th I think you're going to enjoy. It's a pretty short read, um, but I ha I'll have a link on the show notes for that if that book interests you. Day one, the crossing itself. Day two was the Battle of Trenton. And after securing a victory, the army marched back to the river and crossed it back into Pennsylvania. Initially, Washington considered moving to Princeton and fighting there. But, as I said before, they were too tired, hungry, and exhausted, and they just needed to rest. They had been on the march and fighting for over 24 hours at that point. Day 3 and 4 were days of resting and planning. Day 5 of the 10 crucial days, the army crossed the Delaware River again and marched right back to Trenton. Day 6, which was December 30th, Washington gave a speech and persuaded a small portion of the army to stay enlisted for just another six weeks. And, to sweeten the pot, he offered those who would stay on longer a $10 bonus. Now, that doesn't sound like much to us, right? You want, you want me to stay another month and a half for 10 bucks and get shot at? No thanks, right? But back then, $10 equated to about $350 in today's money. With the average private being paid $6.67 per month, a $10 bonus was pretty darn good. So um, not everybody took that, but enough did uh, to continue going on with the fighting and having an army. Day 7, New Year's Eve, kind of like today, the army moves through Trenton and then heads back to Princeton, which was about a 12-mile march. Day 8 of the 10 crucial days was the first day of 1777, and they had a skirmish with British and Hessian troops in Princeton. The next day, day 9, is oftentimes called the Second Battle of Trenton, and this is where Washington and his army fought 8,000 British and Hessian troops. Now, the Continental Army was able to repel their attacks at Assunpink Creek until dusk. Cornwallis could have pressed further and maybe ended the battle, but instead he said of Washington, quote, I'll bag the fox in the morning. Yet another mistake by Cornwallis. Day 10, overnight, Washington and his army withdrew from the Trenton area and marched to Princeton, where they defeated the British and Hessian army again. Days 11, 12, and 13, which were the three days afterwards, the Continental Army left Princeton and set up winter quarters at Morristown. And Valley Forge is generally thought of as being the coldest winter of the Revolutionary War. It certainly gets the most press, right? But as far as weather is concerned, Valley Forge was 
pretty average. Uh, in fact, the winter at Morristown is considered the worst, not only during the war, but it was considered the most harsh winter of the 18th century. In 10 days, Washington had secured three victories, all of which were not supposed to happen, couldn't happen, and were impossible to complete. When fighting for freedom and a cause, it changes everything, and this was clearly demonstrated during these 10 days. I think you now have an excellent account of the crossing of the Delaware, the Battle of Trenton, the Second Battle of Trenton, and the victory at Princeton. I really hope that you take time to visit the show notes for this show. Uh, well, to be honest, I hope you check out every episode's show notes, but this one is seriously full of so much good stuff. I just think you're going to really find it um, appealing. Uh, included are the personal pictures and videos of the area when I visited the crossing location, other really good videos about everything that we discussed, and has a treasure trove of links that you can explore and learn even more, which includes videos that are geared toward kids and books that I recommend. There's a lot there, and that is with every single podcast. Every show has show notes, so explore that at patriotpowerpodcast.com and then just click on show notes. With this and all of my show links, I have spent the time doing the research for you. It's all ready for you to click and enjoy. And I only add quality and beneficial content. So you're not going to have to worry about being sent on a wild goose chase or me just having hundreds and hundreds of links so it looks good. I only put stuff in there that relates to what I talk about per episode and stuff that I really found accurate and of quality. All right, so let's go ahead and talk about a few interesting or lesser known facts about what we've talked about today, including the famous painting that I said I would get to. I will get to that here in a minute. So before the army crossed the Delaware, George Washington ordered officers to read Thomas Paine's The American Crisis to the Continental Army. Contained in that pamphlet were Paine's famous words, quote, these are the times that try men's souls. As you have guessed, I have a link to the American Crisis text in the show notes. The city of Trenton was not fortified, thus leaving the Hessians vulnerable to attack. In fact, the Hessian commander, Johann Rall, did not take the advice of many of his officers to fortify the town. Nor did he read the note of warning either, found later after his death still in his pocket. Americans had suffered major defeats before the Battle of Trenton, including the Battle of Long Island. This is the battle where my ancestor, Peter Kern, my fifth great-grandfather, fought in that battle. So that's kind of cool. Two-thirds of the Hessian troops were captured in the Battle of Trenton. Spies and deserters had informed the British and Hessians that Trenton was likely to be attacked. With typical Hessian bravado, Rawl dismissed or even welcomed the threat, stating, quote, Let them come. Why defenses? We will go at them with the bayonet. The crossing was hampered by bad weather, as you well know. One soldier recorded in his journal that, quote, It blew a perfect hurricane. The timeline that Washington had for his plan, the crossing and Trenton, was way behind schedule. He anticipated crossing the river and being in Trenton as the sun came up. Since the crossing took 11 hours and the march much longer than expected, he actually contemplated canceling the surprise attack. I and this country can be thankful that he didn't. In fact, Washington later wrote, quote, as I was certain there was no making a retreat without being discovered and harassed on repassing the river, I determined to push on at all events. Washington had valuable spy information, a map of Princeton prior to the attack. He had sent Colonel John Cadwallader to get anything that he could and wrote to him, quote, 
Spare no pains or expense to get intelligence of the enemy's motions and intentions. Every piece of intelligence you obtain worthy of notice, send it forward by express. The map that he drew for Washington still exists, and it's located in the Library of Congress, and I have placed an image of that map in the show notes, and you can enlarge it and look at the details. It's pretty impressive for a handwritten map, uh, I must say. At one point in the Battle of Princeton, Washington was only 30 yards from the British line. Now, that is easily within range, accurate range, of a musket. And Washington rode astride his magnificent white horse with musket balls flying all around him and calmly told his soldiers, quote, Parade with us, my brave fellows. There is but a handful of the enemy, and we shall have them directly. This would not be the first time that he was close to enemy lines, and in other instances he would have to be pulled away and back to safety by his men. The final actions of the Battle of Princeton, the victory of Clark Farm, took place on what is now Princeton University. Nassau Hall still stands today as it did during the battle. Charles Wilson Peale, who painted virtually everyone of importance back then, painted a very famous painting of George Washington called Washington at Princeton. In the original painting, which is now a part of the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts Collection, George Washington leans upon the barrel of a captured cannon while Hessian and British flags lie at his feet. Washington is in his blue uniform with a commander's sash, looking confidently, and in the background, one can make out Nassau Hall, the scene of the final moments of the battle. I have a photo of this painting in the show notes. An officer in Washington's staff wrote this before the battle. Quote, They make a great deal of Christmas in Germany. And no doubt the Hessians will drink a great deal of beer and have a dance tonight. They will be sleepy tomorrow morning. Popular history commonly describes the Hessians as drunk from Christmas celebrations. I've already talked about this at length. However, historian David Fisher quotes Patriot John Greenwood, who was actually there and fought in the battle, and he was also the one that was put in charge to oversee the Hessian prisoners after their capture. Greenwood himself wrote, quote, I am certain not a drop of liquor was drunk during the whole night, nor, as I could see, even a piece of bread eaten, end quote. Military historian Edward Lingle wrote, quote, The Germans were dazed and tired, but there is no truth to the legend claiming that they were helplessly drunk. And lastly, the famous painting of Washington in the boat with his men crossing the Delaware. Painted in 1851 by German artist Emanuel Lutz, Washington crossing the Delaware became a sensation on both sides of the Atlantic. And I would say it's probably one of the most famous paintings in America to date. If you're listening to me now and you're not driving, might I suggest clicking over to the show notes and look at this painting that I have there, or at least picture it in your mind. It might be easier for you to listen and look at the painting at the same time, but if not, I will do my best to describe it to you. So the big painting I'm talking about, which I'm sure you already have in your mind, in the painting, it shows Washington standing up near the front of the Durham boat, stoic. Had he done this, he probably would have fallen in. Likely, he was sitting down or kneeling and trying to protect himself from the onslaught of the miserable sleet and cold. And some say they would have all been standing up because the boat was a flat bottom boat and would have cold water coming over the top. But either way, Washington would not be in that precarious of a position. In the painting, if you look closely at George Washington, he looks like the aged man gray hair and all, like the George Washington on our $1 bill. But at the time, George Washington was only 44 years old and when he crossed the river, so his appearance would not have been what that painting depicts. 
The painting seems to indicate that the crossing took place at some point during the day with a stream of sunlight attempting to cut its way through the clouds. This too is obviously inaccurate as the crossing was done in the middle of the night ending around 3 a.m. and aside from lanterns it would have been pitch black. The man to the right of Washington in the boat, James Monroe, also standing, holding a flag, showing the bravery of the men in the boat about halfway through the river and the crossing. The only problem with that is the flag he's holding was not in existence yet. The flag he's holding, red, white, and blue with 13 stars in a circle, was created about a year and a half after the crossing took place. Another thing that doesn't quite jive is the ice in the river in the painting. It appears banging up next to the boat and floating in the river looks like miniature icebergs. And although there were ice patches and parts of, of the river that were frozen, it wouldn't have looked like this. In the painting, it shows horses in the Durham boats, which actually, as you now know, went over the river on a ferry. I don't think the horses or cannons would have done very well in those boats at all. In 2011, Mort Kunster, a painter that is highly known for his accuracy in painting historical events, painted his own version of Washington's Crossing. You might have guessed that I have this photo too in the show notes for you to check out. It is probably closer to what it looked like than the famous painting of Lutz. The inaccuracies aside, Lutz painted this 75 years after it happened and painted it while he was in Germany. When I look at the painting, my first thought isn't how wrong it is, how historically inaccurate it is, but I like to look at it as what the painting represents. To me, Washington is leading the way up front, very stoic. The icebergs represent the countless obstacles and challenges that the army faced and that they had to overcome. The turbulent contest that took place over eight years is captured in this one painting. Now, the original painting is not a small one, and it now sits in the Metropolitan Museum of Arts in New York, 12 feet 5 inches by 21 feet 3 inches in size, you cannot miss this painting. And the Metropolitan website, they have a short audio clip explaining the painting with close-up thumbnails from various parts of the actual painting. And it's really pretty cool to see the brush strokes and have certain parts isolated. It's an excellent online presentation, which of course, the link is in the show notes for you to explore. The one downside to the audio portion though, as with many other places online, is they say the Hessians were drunk and hung over at the time, which you now know is likely not the case, but it is still worth visiting that link. The crossing of the Delaware was a major turning point in the Revolutionary War. Thomas Paine's pamphlet was a huge hit and really had an impact on the soldiers. The battles that followed, all victories, added to the shift in the mood of the army and the colonists, and all of these critical events led to the monumental benefits for the Continental Army. Thanks for listening and hope that you tune in next time with us here at the Patriot Power Podcast. Make sure that you hit subscribe so you'll get notified when our new episodes are available for you. And we hope that you check out our websites, which include our show notes, links, documents, and more at PatriotPowerPodcast.com or ILoveGeorgeWashington.com. Until next time, hope that you and your family have a blessed week. And remember, be safe and tell a veteran thanks for their service.